2: Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. You may have heard we had an election yesterday. Uh, We are still sitting in the epistemic fog, what actually happened. As uh, I record this intro, it looks like Biden is on track to win the presidency. I'll talk more about some predictions in in, in the show um during uh, the recording of this Michigan got called by a bunch of different places, but Pennsylvania is still not called, Arizona is only called by AP and Fox. So we're we're waiting for some things to finish. Um North Carolina isn't called, Georgia isn't called, but it it's things seem to be trending towards Biden. I've been thinking um, before the election of who I'd want to talk to the day after. We I knew there was a lot I wasn't going to know, that we weren't going to know, and also that I was going to be tired. <laughs> and um, there are only so many people I want to talk to in, in those circumstances. But I was thrilled that my longtime friend and one of my favorite people to have on the program, Chris Hayes, was willing to join me um, on a night that he's had a very, very long day and a long night. Um, Chris, of course, is the host of All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC. He's the host of the podcast, Why Is This Happening with Chris. Hayes. He is one of, I would say, the most brilliant minds in political punditry and, and anchoring um, and uh, a, a longtime dear colleague on, uh, on these issues and somebody I love to work through, particularly things I have not quite processed yet with. Um, Chris is great for doing the doing the thinking aloud part of this job, and you're going to get a lot of that in this show. Um, I'm not going to spend more time on the intro here. My email is our client show
3: at vox.com. Here's Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes, welcome back to the show. Uh, I want to say it's awesome to be back, but but nothing feels like um, unambiguously awesome right now. But it is wonderful to hear your voice. Let's level set. Where where are you? How are you feeling? What are you thinking? There were dark moments last night. There were very, very dark moments. You know, I I have I think for the preservation. I'm gonna I'm gonna share too much information right now. Um, but that's why we're here. I I
2: want the audience to know that this is mostly an opportunity for us to catch up, and we just make make
3: too much of our personalized public and that's our i mean the level the level setting is that like i have a beloved relative who's in the hospital not with covid but you know people can't visit her and i'm worried about her and i have someone that i'm sorry that is in my in very close to us in our household whose whose entire family has covid including someone who's now in the hospital and it can't no one can go with her and so there's just like this background ambience of you know Personal anxiety around health, which which I think comes upon like eight months of kind of emotional trauma of the pandemic and its aftermath and the stress of the election. <laughs> and like my household right now, we have, you know, three children, two of whom resume schooling with friends. And Kate is, you know, teaching a class and doing a podcast and doing ABC commentary. And we both got home at 5 in the morning. So I'm as pulled bear as a human being as i have been in a long time um on a personal level and then i guess the way that i'm dealing with that which i think is sort of good for our purposes is like really trying to keep perspective and 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 take a long view and be philosophical and reflective about what is transpiring before us so that's where i'm at
2: first i'm really really sorry about the Folk closer to in the hospital.
3: That's a lot. That's yeah. I, a lot. I think, I think everyone's going to be, I think everyone's going to be okay. You know, like I, it's just that like there's a, there's a sort of ambient layer, of very high stakes anxiety atop, you know, the, the sort of broader stuff, but, but thank you. And I think everyone's gonna be okay.
2: Yeah. Um, I was thinking about the last thing you said about being, trying to take the, the long view and I'm, I'm sort of phase shifting in and out of that right now. I, I yeah. don't know how much you do this, but, I find that I become almost robotic on election days. I so disassociate professionally. I so just see like a matrix of stories and yeah. information we don't have. And it's not that I don't have anxiety on them, I do, but it is so wiped out by a like a public version of me coming into play. And so it actually takes time right after the vote, and we're still in like what I would describe as a complete epistemic fog. But it takes time, like right after the vote, to, like figure out what I'm, what I'm even feeling about it, or what I even think about it, and I just keep going back and forth between. I objectively think the situation looks grim from the perspective of the things I care really deeply about, and of course. It, compared to expectations called a couple months ago, you know, Joe Biden winning the presidency with some gains for Democrats in the Senate and some losses in the House is like within the realm of like reasonable outcomes, right? Like yep. we're not dealing yep. with a like an unexpected collapse nope. here for, for nope. the Democrats, which I think is, I don't wanna see Trump return to office, but man, there is a part of me that if I look in the face of how disappointed I am, to see so many of my fellow countrymen look at this man after four years and say the way he behaves is acceptable, yeah, and acceptable, preferable. I can't stare at it too directly.
3: It's it, I. I'm feeling similarly. Um, for me, the thing that makes it harder is is the pandemic. The version of everything in say January or just you know, it would be more legible to me. I mean, you know he you know oh we don't like the tweets and he's kind of a maniac but you know unemployment is quite low and there's like genuine wage gains at the bottom of the labor market and there's there's a there's a tight labor market that is producing really positive tangible material gains in people's lives and that that counts for something um and that would be a legible result to me i am having a hard time with the covid part of it um i think partly cuz it's been a real Obviously, obsession of mine is something we've covered, but also because, like, it's pretty clear to me that his, he, like, he is directly responsible for probably about 100,000 lives of people that didn't have to die. I think that's actually possibly a conservative estimate. And, like, that level of failure and and grimness not having any appreciable effect. I mean, really any appreciable effect, I think, on the election is really hard to square with some sense of democratic theory having like some feedback mechanisms going back into the populace about how how leaders are doing. Yeah, I
2: I think all the time. So (laughs) you may know, uh, and and of course you do, um, that I wrote this book, Why We're Polarized, that you very kindly blurbed. And I'm having this weird year where I wrote a book that I think actually describes what is happening reasonably well. And I keep not being able to fully believe in my own thesis as much as I need to to predict things properly. Like the end of the introduction of that book, right? That, like, what I always think of as like the key paragraph of the book, which I'll paraphrase here from memory, is something like amidst this level of polarization, you develop a politics that is devoid of accountability, that is devoid of consequences, where right. Um, anything that a party leader does can be rationalized by by his side. And still, like the the whole book is about this. And then the way it filters into information spheres and everything, everything in the book is about this. And still, if you had told me that there would be a year and we would have a pandemic um, and 200,000 plus Americans would die and we would see this kind of effect on the economy and we would see other countries that did it better, we would look up to Canada and see how much better they did it. And then the president would just act in the way he has acted. I mean, it's one thing to fail while putting on a performance of competence.
3: Right. Getting caught trying. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's another thing to put on a performance of incompetence, like joking about um, not even really joking. I mean, we all saw that, you know, injecting bleach, but not even that. Talking about firing Fauci, you know, just totally erratic, ridiculous, you know, up and down, no mask, creating your own super spreading. But I would have told you it would matter more.
3: Yeah. And like, My book would have said no, and I would have said yes, and I was the wrong one. So this is something that I think I was thinking about your book today, because I do think I do think there's a little bit. So the the ways that I'm trying to be philosophical is a the hottest take I have is that there are many conservatives in America. (laughs) Like there just are tens of millions of people that have their conservative politics for a variety of very complicated, you know, sociological, religious, in some cases, class reasons. Like there's a whole bunch of people that are conservatives. They're, 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 You know, the the, the conservatives exist. Um, the, The people I think that I would describe as like hardcore conservatives are probably not enough to maintain a really robust governing coalition. It's, you know, maybe it's 30, 35, somewhere around there. And then there's a bunch of people that are attracted to the Republican Party through other means. But. There's no waving them away and there is no – the Twitter thread I had today is that it is amazing to me how ubiquitous across the intersecting lines of conflict within the broad center left, from centrist all the way to socialist, how much there is this ubiquitous expectation that like Democrats should be winning by eight and ten points. They should have these durable governing majorities. They should be kicking the Republicans' butts. And they're not because they're doing it wrong and here's the way to do it right. And I I think it is – really worthwhile to reassess that first foundational assumption there. Because, yes, at one level in terms of governance, I agree. The last two Republican presidents have been unbelievably abject failures in world historical terms. George W. Bush and Donald Trump. I think there's a lot of continuity between them and the continuity is horrifying in it's failures. So, yes, at some level, it's like there should be. But also it's like, where is that should coming from? The should is that there should be fewer people who are attracted to the conservatism, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or or the modern incarnation of how it's communicated by certain charismatic figures in the party. And like, maybe that's just what it is. Like, we just have a 50-50 country and we run these elections and they're essentially coin flips. And the last one went 77,000 votes across three states for Donald Trump. And this one's going to go 100,000 votes across three states for Joe Biden. <laughs> After all said and done, like everything looks the goddamn same. But that that I that I want to pick up on because
2: we're doing the thing here, right? We are... Donald Trump is he's an emotional gravity hole. Right? He 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 activates you, he takes up all the all, all the energy. But actually, if I look at this election as disappointing as I find it, the Donald Trump will increase his vote total but not his vote share as far as I can tell. Right? Joe Biden is going to thump him in the popular vote. I think the, the last estimate I saw, and we don't really know, but it's something like five to seven million. But given where we sit right now, given given what we know right now, and again, I can I, I want to say we don't know that much and we're in an epistemic fog, but given what we think we, we know right now, Joe Biden looks likely to take the presidency. That looks like where we are and to win yes. the popular vote reasonably convincingly. Yes. And around that... Republicans, I think, are going to hold the Senate. That's what it looks like to me right now. Yep. Um, Democrats lost seats in the House, which is a, a notable thing. Um, Democrats gained seats in the Senate, but but not enough. <laughs> And then Republicans did reasonably well, in fact, quite well in a bunch of state legislatures, which uh, you know also have their own gerrymandering and other uh, other issues, to retain control of the gerrymandering process in a very big way after the next sen- after the census, and they have this six three majority on the Supreme Court. And so the thing, uh, like my big obsession over the past couple of years, and where my book on polarization ends, and where this podcast has been a lot. Is around democracy itself. What kind of system do we have? Like, what are the rules uh, of the game? Like, we're not a coin flip nation. We're not. We're not. Like, not given the way these these votes have gone down. And I keep thinking that like the the summation of this election is going to be that Democrats win if if things go the way I think they're going. Democrats won the presidency and lost democracy. Because, like, on every arm where you need, where the Republicans needed control to keep building out this minoritarian pathway to, to power, they're going to keep that control and be able to keep building it, even as Democrats have gotten Trump out, even if
3: Democrats get Trump out of office. Right. So there's two there's two things here, right? There's the like the nature of the two, two coalitions and their relative popularity. And then there's the gravity of the of the U.S. Constitutional Republic and the way that everything sort of. Is pulled on by that towards these sort of institutions, often very anti democratic. I mean, it is worth taking a second again to like put the shoe on the other foot, right? Here are some things to consider Joe Biden, when all is said and done, will have a, won a larger vote share than any challenger of an incumbent since Franklin Delano Roosevelt, since 1932. He is going to probably win a larger vote share than Ronald Reagan did in 1980, of course, seen as a like iconic example of a you know, failed presidency in crisis being swept out (laughs) by the, you know, by this, by this, uh, you know, new ascendant conservatism? Will he have a larger vote margin over the-
2: but, or, or is that because there was, what was it, Anderson that year? Right? Exactly. So what's
3: really interesting is that his share, w- w- there's a lot of things that are fascinating with it. His share will be higher because it's essentially a two-party vote with a s- very little th- third-party vote in this election. Um, You had big third-party players, Anderson and H. Ross Perot, in the last two times that you had first one-term presidents who were kicked out by a challenger. And so you have these you know, weird results, right? Where there's like a big gap, but the vote share, you know, Joe Biden's going to win probably 51% of the vote. Now I've covered politics a lot in my life and, and this and will never stop being crazy. And we should keep mentioning it while last night, while we were covering states and house raises that were being called because someone was up two or three or four points, four points being like pretty comfortable, like four points is like, okay, you you got this race. That's what the final margin for the popular vote's going to be for Joe Biden. It's probably going to be around maybe two, three, four points, somewhere in there. And we're all stressing it because of the electoral college. Like, not only that, when you get 50% plus one in a race, the first thing you learn on campaign school day one is 50% plus one is a victory. (laughs) Under any circumstances, 50% plus one is victory. You can win with 48 if you get enough third vote share. You can win with 47, you can win 46, but if you get 50% of the votes plus one vote, you have mathematically won that election. And so Joe Biden is, it's not just like Hillary Clinton beating Donald Trump by 3 million votes. He is the majority choice, a majority of voters. (laughs) The, the 50% plus one voters of this country went and chose him. That is astounding. And not only that, this now marks the first time in American history that a single party has won more votes nationally in seven of eight presidential elections. It has not happened before. That is so wild to contemplate. Yes. Yeah, so we exist
2: in this era, which is more competitive in terms of party power than any era in American politics ever. I've had Francis Lee on the show talking about this. Like, if you look, if you 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 pull together presidential results and congressional results, then in terms of how closely divided the parties are in power they hold and how often they trade it back and forth, we have never seen an era in American politics as competitive as the one we're living in. And and yet, if you look at American political preferences, it's not true, right? And so we have this like distorting field that the entire thing goes through. And it just makes it, one thing I think it does is just make a total fucking hash out of punditry because all punditry operates on this implicit idea that if you're losing or you're not doing as well as you were expected to, you messed up your messaging somehow. But with Democrats, they're constantly winning votes. Their messaging is more popular, but losing anyway, or not getting as much power as they would expect to. And so then the question, and and Republicans get looked at as like, you know like donald trump i think is getting seen as almost some kind of genius even though he's probably going to lose the presidency because he right. improved vote margins among hispanics um, which is an interesting thing that's bit def- defying the the narrative party the democrats have had over the past 4 years but also he's going to like he's doing terribly just objectively in terms of winning over people right? <laughs> but he get you know you have this amazing handicap as a as a Republican, um which just changes the entire way people think about it. You know, then there's this whole fight online of counterfactuals. Bernie Sanders would have won, Hillary Clinton would have won. Joe Biden probably did win. And you know, whether or not your counterfactual candidate would have done better or worse is is a little bit unclear. but everything is through this weird field of the electoral college. and like what you're doing, to appeal to that is very different than what is the message it will appeal to most
3: Americans. Like you're, you're fighting, you're fighting a game with very, very strange rules. That's exactly right. And because of these sort of structural factors though, right, so when, when, when you get the polarization, which again, it's not 50, 50, say it's a 40, it's a 52, 48 nation, right? <laughs> but it's close enough that like all the margins matter tremendously. And there's a kind of equipoise that things are pulling towards and, and different demographic trends are pulling in opposite directions, almost at equal force on both coalitions. Right. So you know it's like the gains there are gains among educated voters but they start to get diminishing returns between 2018 and 2020 one of the things we saw while um the the margins shrink among hispanic voters right so there's there's a bunch of different things that are setting off each other what it means is that you get a lot of close elections and what it also means is with the combination of close elections and the sort of institutions there's just an infinite amount of of, of plausible counterfactual takes to produce <laughs> about yep. what the thing was that did it in the same way that a basketball game that's won by a three pointer at the buzzer, but there was a foul called before that and a non foul called before that and also a bad pass before that sports radio has three hours of content the next day about which of those four key plays <laughs> was the play that won the game. You you're constantly going to be doing that here, and so the thing I keep thinking about as I run the counterfactuals, like, what does this make me reassess about 2016? At one level, I can say, yeah, Comey letter cost Hillary Clinton the race pretty clearly. Like, look at look at how narrow it was, and look at what the you know that re, that sort of reinforces my priors. It could I could also say Clinton underperformed because there was such a big third party vote share and there was such low turnout. But then when I flip to the other side, I think, well, it's kind of crazy that there was very high turnout and very low third-party vote share, and Biden's going to end up winning in a similar ballpark to Hillary Clinton and having flipped the right 80,000 votes. So what the hell does that say about everything?
2: The Ezra will be back after a short break.
4: borough.com slash box
2: so you had this point a couple of minutes ago that there is an implicit assumption governing the way liberals look at the election which is that they should be winning by seven to eight points and i think two things are happening there one is just a feeling that donald trump is such a grotesque character in in american politics that that he should be roundly rejected by a decent society and you know what like that i believe that too but the other is that one reason liberals got to that place, which is not where they were a year ago, is that that's what the polling actually said this year, right? I mean, I think the average by the end was something in the eight to nine points nationally, which I think now we're probably looking at something like a four to five point margin. So the national numbers are not going to be that far off, but in the states, my God and in the same states that pollsters failed in in 2016 I just had Nate silver on the show right before the election and we were talking about this about polling error and something he said was you know on the one hand pollsters have really tried to fix what they did wrong in 2016 that they're they're going to choose some models that don't look like they're underestimating the the, the Trump vote they're going to err on the side of caution there and I kind of went out of that um conversation even though Nate did say too, like, remember that polling error is basically uncorrelated election to election. Like, it's like a coin flip election to election. But I went out thinking it's a little bit likelier that if there's a big polling error, it's going to be in Biden's favor because pollsters, they've had so much time to correct the mistakes of 2016. Right. So you're not going to get the same mistake in the same places in 2020. But nope, you got the same mistake in the same places in a bigger way
3: in 2020. No, no, not only that, let me just say this, right? Like, the, the, it, it's not just about Trump either. It's like, North, like South Carolina and Maine are very different states. They're very different places, different demographic compositions, different political cultures. Uh, You know, one went for Biden by nine points. One went for Trump by 11 or whatever. I don't know how many points I haven't checked. And yet the same polling error of about the same size in both races in the same direction, not about Donald Trump, about two very different Senate. Uh, Republican senators who are different stripes of kind of normie Republican, like something is systematically wrong here when the misses are right, happening. Is there a
2: shy Susan Collins vote?
3: Right. Exactly. That's my <laughs> point. Right. Like, OK, you want to do that. You you want to run your analysis about Trump. Forget Trump. Like, why did Max Rose underperform his polls in New York's 12th district in Staten Island? Why did Sochi Torres Small like underperform in, you know, New Mexico? Like, there's a bunch of misses that happen systematically in one direction at the state and district level that essentially, to me, render state and district level polling worthless. And if it's worthless, that's a real problem because that's how we measure <laughs> to what we can. I mean, there are problems with the ways that polls themselves construct what public opinion is. Public opinion, obviously, extremely complicated concept and long debates. H.L. Mencken, Thomas Dewey about what how we make it and how it changes and how it shifts. But some sort of me- reliable measurement of where people are at is pretty important, and I I just don't trust we have it right now.
2: So uh, this is exactly where I wanted to go. Thank you. Um, I've this is like what I'm obsessing on right now. But but even in a slightly different way, which is to say, there is a question of whether or not we have reliable measurement. And there, because the national polling often seems to be reasonably good, if you ask me, are we able to measure something like? what percent of voters approve of the job Donald Trump is doing as president? Or, you know, what do voters think about a public option in health care? I think nationally we can get a number on that that is relatively instructive, um, particularly over a, a consistent set of, uh, of polls over time. At the same time, we do not have granular election data given the way our system works where states vote and nations don't, um, that Um, is reliable in any way. And we never know which way in, it's going to be unreliable in. And then on top of that, we have so much of it now. There are so many polls that are available to everybody simultaneously because they're all getting aggregated together. Then there are the forecasters. Um, and I would say I think the forecasters themselves, like the Nates and so on, are really, really good sources of information. But their forecasts are creating like a constant drumbeat of micro news that often, I don't want to call it misleading, but I'm not sure how useful it is. And I particularly feel this way about the needle. I think the needle at The Times, (laughs) it does so much damage to the narrative early in the night because everybody who's a political junkie is sitting there watching it. And this time, like basically all they had early night was Florida and Florida was a particularly bad miss for, for, for Democrats and for polling. And so it just like it completely shaded the night, but in a not very instructive way. I mean, at this point, Georgia and North Carolina are too close to call. And I watched those in the 80, 90% to, um, for much of the night on the needle. So there's something Correct. completely Correct. I think, wrong yes. with how that's running. So here's my here's a question for you, which actually goes to that deeper issue of, of constructing public opinion. What are we doing with all these polls? Like e- like existentially, like, what, what are is we the doing? role polling yep. and forecasting is playing in our coverage? And is it a good one? Like how would we, do we Do we even have the capacity to ask ourselves as a profession whether or not we have gone down the wrong road here?
3: Well, so I think it's it's such a good question. And there's so there's so much to say about it. So one basic thing here is that since humans stepped out of the cave, they have wanted to know the future. But the future is unknowable. And there has been some set of people who have arisen to fill the gap. I appreciate how broadly you interpreted this question. <laughs> well, no, but it's, but, but it's absolutely yeah, you're true. You're completely I mean, right. It's a, it's a, it's
2: it's a like totally correct response. They're
3: prophets, they're seers, they're priests, they're fortune tellers. They're like, we want to know the future, but we can't know the future. And so there will always be ways in which human beings try to plug that gap. And there are real arguments about how empirically sophisticated they are. And this has to do with modeling and predictions that happen in Wall Street all the time and prediction markets and there's like a deep philosophical question about all this stuff. So there's so part of it is that, right? Like part of it is just there is a brute desire to know the future. And I, you know, I was doing it too last night. I was I was texting people, what are you seeing? Well, they're seeing the same goddamn thing I'm seeing. <laughs> I just we're looking at all the same freaking numbers. I wanted there to be some portal into 20 minutes beyond my time horizon. And so I text a person as if that's a possibility. And that that desire is so, so profound, so powerful, so elemental to human experience of life on the planet, which moves one way through time that we will never get rid of it. And there will be different permutations of the way that we deal with it. So that's one thing. But in a more like that's the emotional substrata to me, the more the question of what are we doing as as journalists are are, are twofold. I think there is a legitimate reason to want to know who's winning an election (laughs) beyond wanting to know who is, uh, you know, wanting to know the future. And that is to see how messages and policies and performance are resonating with the democratic electorate. And so if someone comes out and says let's ban all muslims and he goes down by 15 points in the polls that's a really important piece of knowledge <laughs> about the the, dem, the the demos. It's an that's an and if he doesn't move it all in the polls or if he goes up That's also an important piece of knowledge. Like, that's not a frivolous thing. That's not just wanting to know the future. That's actually some information about where people are at, what they're willing to tolerate, what their sort of beliefs are. And then you move one adjacent. And and, and I want to hone in on this for a second when you talk about, like, polling on healthcare or the minimum wage or issues. I got to say, like, I just call all that into question because those polls never have an election day. Like, the polls of the candidates have an election day. Susan Collins is in well, a Well, they, they sort of do,
2: though, right? I, I just want to note the ballots, the ballot initiatives do actually. You see this all That's over, with like the Medicare ballot initiatives and the minimum wage. I have, I actually want to talk about this because I have a real problem with the way people analyze those. But but there's a funny way in which you do see sometimes like that difference between what happens when you test an
3: issue and when you test a party. That is that is a great point. And, and actually, and those ballot initiatives are sort of a useful control. But like the thing I'm thinking of right now is like Black Lives Matter. And, you know, we had a ton of polling in indicating, you know, back in the wake of the George Floyd protests that like there was a there was a, a sort of majority, a surprising majority in the country that was sort of, you know, on the side of kind of this push for racial equity. And there were big movements among white people. And like, I just don't in retrospect, I don't believe that shit. <laughs> like, why is that not the same Susan Collins is losing the Sarah Gideon call? Why should I think like there's no way we ever get to test that polling in the way that we got to test the Susan Collins and and Lindsey Graham question. But why should I why should I have thought? And what was I communicating to my audience when I was dutifully reporting night after night that this is what the polling said? Because I thought it was an important fact about the demos. I thought it was an important fact about who we are as a nation. I thought it was an important fact about how public opinion moves over time in relation to protest or to perceived injustice. All that felt important to me journalistically, but maybe I was just feeding everyone garbage.
2: So I think this is so hard, and I'm 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 caught in this right now. So I'm going to hold in it for for a couple minutes. Let me let me give two two thoughts on this. So one. Too much of anything can become a problem, even if having enough of it solves a problem. And that's how, where I'm increasingly going on on, on on polling and forecasting, I think. As you say, like we need to be disciplined. And I don't mean in our personal habits. I mean, we need to be disciplined like children. As journalists, to not just assert what we want to be true about the country and the electorate constantly. Yep. There is a huge amount of pundits fallacy everywhere. I mean, oh my God, if you're on Twitter right after this election, you had a great um, retweet of Andrew <laughs> Sullivan saying <laughs> that over the f- last four years, I've never wavered in my hatred of Donald Trump and believe he's unfit for office, but also I've become increasingly repulsed by the less identity politics. And now it's clear the country agrees with me. And that's the that's that's the problem with punditry, right? I mean, I like it's clear the country agrees with me too right now, right? I mean, there's a huge, there's a huge um, when there's so little good data. It's very easy to project your own preferences onto the country. And, and on one level, polling, forecasting, et cetera, is a disciplining um, version of that. Right now, you are going to go back and you're going to see Mother Jones had a great article on how Democrats were losing um, Cubans in, in, in Florida, uh, right. Cuban Americans in Florida. And that like looks really prescient. But the universe of articles like that about different subgroups is vast, and so now we know, in retrospect, like that's one of the ones you really should have looked at. And there was some good information from polling that Biden was performing worse among Hispanics. And that was a clear a clear issue that did get some attention. So, but you need the polling and, and you, then you need the election results to tell, like, you can't just have journalists wandering around telling anecdotal stories about right. what's happening in, in, in this subgroup or that subgroup. So the thing that came before polling is not great either. But on the other, other hand... I think that we are trapped constantly in this cage that the the polls make for us of one what is politically possible and who is possible, which has been defied a number of times in recent years um what? whether or not public opinion even matters, by the way. So there's a lot of talk of national polling, which is meaningless, given everything we talked about, about the structure of American politics. Then there's all this talk about issue polling, right? I mean, take something like gun control, but you can't pass anything through the Senate. So it doesn't matter that it polls at 85%, at 90%. um, You still can't get over a filibuster. And so, on the one hand, we are, like, trying to pull forward public opinion, as if public opinion is powerful when in America it's neutered, oftentimes. And on the other hand, there's this whole, there's a, a Another issue of it pushing everyone towards this assumed zone of the possible or zone of the yes. popular and an unwillingness to represent things that people think are true but unpopular, or represent things that are um just like out of what people are worried about, right? Polling gets used as a cudgel to keep everybody sort of on task. And I just don't know. I just think we have too much of this floating around in a way that is. Creating a validated
3: structure that isn't the isn't the true structure under which we live. Yeah, it feels it does feel to me more and more a little like the reporting I did in the financial crisis about like all the quant models and data that all the banks use to look at and say like, well, housing prices can't all go down across the country at the same time. <laughs> like, and so we've run the numbers. And so we've got, we've got this, we've created this CDO that's, you know, got four different tranches of loans that are coming in from such disparate places that they can't, they, in the aggregate, they, you know, they it, and it's like, no, it, you were wrong about that. And you built, and you, a lot of smart people got together and built a lot of smart stuff that was just wrong in a catastrophic way. And I don't, I don't think we're there with Polling, because I think that you're, the, the deeper question is really more profound, what you're saying. And I think it's so true, like polling, the kind of polling industrial complex as we think of it, and particularly the rise of Nate Silver, was in response to really bad anecdata takes from <laughs> reporters who would go talk to one person in a diner and be like, this is what everyone thinks. And honestly, there, there's a little bit of a problem. And then there's also your your point about polling as cudgel or restraint on the possible there's also the fact that, like, we're trying to create a language around the aggregated inner lives of millions of people, and I just don't think we've nailed it. Like, the thing that I learned from both my time knocking doors in Dane County, Wisconsin, 2004, which John Kerry uh, carried by less than Joe Biden but and narrowly won the state by 0.28 percentage points— um, the thing I learned from that experience and then from being a political reporter talking to people is, at the individual level, people's politics are irreducibly weird. Always. <laughs> yes.
2: Could not be truer.
3: <laughs> but that's not really true in the aggregate, which is to say, if you present me with a white woman with a PhD who lives in San Francisco and said, like, make a bet on who she voted for, like... I. <laughs> I I that's I got pretty good odds. Now, not completely, right? Like there are white women with PhDs in San Francisco who voted for Donald Trump. But in the aggregate there are obviously real trends in the aggregate. And I just feel like every time we go through this, this sort of we've got the we've got the quantitative stuff which is missing in a systematic way. We've got the qualitative stuff which is can be penetrating but also is so subject to like bias and randomness. And I'm just not sure, like what is between those? <laughs> what is it? I mean, focus groups, I guess, but those also feel useless. I don't know. Maybe it's just an unsolvable problem. Oh,
2: focus groups are, it, I think it might be unsolvable,
3: but but actually I do think there's something not between them, but orthogonal
2: to them. So look, the reason the polling and the forecasting becomes so dominant, particularly towards the end of the election, is that every day, everybody engaged in politics wakes up and the question they really want to have answered for them is who will win. That is every day, it is every hour, it is every minute. And the issue, like the fundamental problem of election journalism is that you mostly don't have any new information on that during the whole period of the election, right? right. So like right. we have unbelievably long elections in America, and for most of them, just nothing is changed day to day. There's nothing really new we can tell you with any level of useful specificity about who will win. Polling creates a drumbeat of news pegs about who Correct. will win, right, Correct. that have... A slightly higher level of rigor to them than me wandering out into a swing county in Wisconsin and talking to people at at diners and gas stations. So that's like one level. It's like meeting this demand. And then the forecasting created this new level of it, right, which is that the forecast is spitting out a new prediction of who will win. I mean, sometimes second to second, functionally, if you're looking yes. at the nowcast. Um, but 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 really, with like the the needle goes second to second, actually. Um, and then you have some things like you know the, the the more traditional forecasts, which maybe they're changing every single day. And some people can use that really well. Like I think if you follow Nate, I, I've said this for years. Like Nate's underappreciated genius is not as a mathematician. Like as the math is reasonably straightforward on that. It's as a communicator of it. He is an extraordinary, He is like the, the best correspondent of the Nate Silver spreadsheet that could possibly be imagined. Like the cheap correspondent of the Nate Silver spreadsheet. So he, because he's so good at that, he is able to have this Endless supply of new information, like news stories about who might win the election, that actually has some grounding, um, where where most people just don't. But the issue of that, and particularly then when everybody has like their own forecasts and can you know play with the forecast and make their own little thing and so on, is that it does pull all of journalism towards that question, which at another point, even if you wanted to have more on it, you couldn't have that much on it because there just wasn't that much grist for the mill. Right? Like there just you couldn't write anything new on it day to day. So you didn't. You figured out something else. You wrote more about healthcare.
3: It's a great point. Although again, like I wonder like what did campaign journalism look like in the 32 campaign? And like I bet you it was pretty horse racy back then too. <laughs> but I'm just not sure oh, it is horse. Yeah, that, that's fair too. You know what I mean? Like just how much continuity, but that point about the way that it creates—it creates basically more news about this topic and more inputs for all the other parts of the ecosystem that need that are seeking nutrients. <laughs> like it's like yes that 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 is that is a really true and profound point, point. and I think part of what and again it also does this thing. I mean, this is the thing that's driving me crazy. I'm trying to tell people it is it it sets a benchmark that if the measurement is wrong, the measurement failed, which is to say. Sarah Gideon did not have a disappointing night last night in Maine. The polling in Maine had a terrible night. It is pretty clear that Sarah Gideon was not—I don't think—going to win that race. I think the same is true with Jamie Harrison and Lindsey Graham. Like, I just think the polling was wrong, it was, and it was wrong all along. And a lot of people on both sides, both campaigns, Republican and Democrat, internal polling and external polling, moving lots of money around and directing resources. All were looking the same thing and thought those were both, you know, particularly the the Collins race was a tight race. Now, maybe it broke massively in the last three days and it was not and it was not picked up. But it seems more likely to me that, like, the polling was wrong. So the question of, well, what did Sarah Gideon screw up or what? That's not the right question. (laughs) And and that also creates real problems for analysis, because if you went into if you went into last night where the polling aggregate said Collins plus 10, you would not, we, we would just have a totally different perception of the race and and writing about the race in the same way that like, you know, was anyone following Mike Enzi's reelection last night? I mean, you know, i didn't have a challenge or whatever, but Ben Sass. like the story then not only does it create news for all of us to do, it just creates a benchmark that everyone is then using their analysis against. Yeah,
2: I mean that that happened all night, and that happened all that night. Then in this reverse way, after the the Florida needle, where it just took hours and hours and hours, for people like, oh, actually, maybe this isn't just twenty sixteen redux, and Joe Biden is going to win this uh, election. I mean the the degree to which the expectations create. A virtual reality that then gets treated as a reality that should have happened, like a yes, like a prophecy. Exactly. Actually.
3: Exactly. How could you, how could you, Sarah Gideon? How could you, Jamie Harrison? How could you <laughs> right, like yes. like you screwed it? It's like, no, there wasn't reality never existed. <laughs> so
2: it, it's a complicated thing. And then I'll, I'll just I'm gonna tap this and then uh, then I wanna move to a different topic, which is that there's also this way in which One reason there's always been so much focus on the who will win question is that it is a a journalistically safer question for organizations that don't want to be seen as too partisan than the who should win question. And I think implicitly, and now explicitly something I'm saying here, is that the who should win question is one that I think that... Journalists can more honestly and rigorously answer, at least starting from their value sets and and from their analyses and and transparently answer than the who will win, right? Like who will win? Maybe you're wrong, but like that that's not a biased form of wrong necessarily. Um, but the who should win, which I think you you can put a tremendous amount of work into into stories that are fundamentally about who should win, right? Like, did, did Donald Trump do a good job on the economy or COVID or climate change, or whatever it might be. But the more explicit you get about that, the more uncomfortable a lot of places become. And so that also creates a sort of pressure towards this who will win form of coverage. But, But again, like, is our value proposition to the audience who will win, you know, and the, the, that, that kind of prophesying, or is it who should win? On the other hand, it's maybe weird for you and I to talk about it, because I think we both operate a little bit more on the who should win side
3: of that divide. So maybe I'm just talking,
2: talking my well, own no, book here. Well,
3: no, but we all, I think we all, <laughs> we also do both. And I, I wrestle with that as well. I mean, one thing that i found, i found kind of exhausting, I found, I found the COVID coverage, you know, that we've done over the last eight or nine months, like exhausting and kind of emotionally draining, but also compelling or rewarding in a certain way and that isn't like there's no horse race, really <laughs> it, you know there's there's just what you know what we can what best picture can we make of what the virus is doing and w- what our public health intervention is doing and what impact it's having on people and in what places and what that means and what does it mean for all of us and the ripple effects and that 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 kind of like who will win, who should win question which I agree like there, there, it's easy to move between those two and there's look, there's a certain kind of you know, there's there's a demand for someone to tell you who will win. I wanted it last night. If, so, if someone had come in the door and been like, "I I will if you pay me ten thousand dollars, <laughs> I will tell you the future," <laughs> and and I thought they could, <laughs> like I would have tried to get my checkbook out, like like you know, think, think of the insider trading possibilities. That's, that's the Mitt Romney, right? The like, it's like <laughs> y- you. So so I think that there's. There's this temptation towards, and I think it's, it's, I totally agree about it being safer. The last, the last thing I'll say about this public opinion question just before we leave, which is that as I think about it, like it's a little bit of this question of, are we naming a thing in the world when we're talking about this? And I think sometimes enough evidence comes in through a bunch of different directions to say we are naming something. So an example, I think, and I think you would agree here is. Is the ACA fairly popular now and certainly more popular than it was eight years ago? And I think there's a bunch of evidence, the behavior of different politicians, the messaging of different politicians, the actual polls themselves, its resiliency in um, many ways, its expansion that, that can tell us that the statement that that law is more popular now and probably you know, popular in some senses than it was before. Like, I feel pretty rock solid about that as a statement about describing a true thing that's out in the world because of all of the different ways in which we come to know that, if that makes sense, rather than just a top line poll. Desert
2: Clown Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
1: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
2: We are living in the bad place, the place the anti-anti-Trump people told me was just alarmism. The president overnight declared victory. He is currently in court trying to get ballot counting stopped in Pennsylvania and Michigan, but he also wants a recount so he can maybe win Wisconsin, which seems unlikely. And um, he needs votes to continue being counted in Arizona and Nevada if he's to have a chance in either of them. So, I mean, you really do have a a situation where the president is saying he won. He is trying to stop votes from getting counted in places where he thinks the voting is going to turn on him. His own supporters have, uh, like, uh, surrounded an absentee ballot counting place in detroit and demanded they stop the count which is not a good idea because um biden's up in michigan so if they stop the count he just wins but nevertheless like they are doing it's becoming an identity marker of trump's support to be against counting the votes he is saying that the election is going to be stolen from him that he's won it on election night giuliani's going to pennsylvania to stop the election from being stolen we are living in the thing people feared um and I think in a useful way, neither the Republican Party or the media is taking like Trump's rhetoric on this all that seriously, which I think helps defang it of some of its power. But it is still a level of the danger and autocratic attempt that I – this is one of those ones where I almost don't feel like I know how to treat it. I think being too alarmed about it in some ways feeds its power. But on the other hand, not being alarmed about it is to um, accept a truly, truly terrifying State of affairs that in other countries leads to crises, coups, and
3: violence. Yeah, I I feel exactly that same cross pressure, which is you don't want to give his statements presumptive validity in any way. He is he is he is a ranting man who is losing an election right now, and 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 even as you are speaking, and Mich- you and I are speaking right now, Michigan is called. Like it it, it just becomes clearer and clearer. Oh, Michigan um, got called. Michigan got called by several outlets. Um. I think uh, the most important reason that this does not
2: look to me like it's going to spiral to total crisis is Fox News is not indulging the president so far.
3: I, it's so far. It's fascinating. I think there's so I at the same time, I've been watching people. Jane McAlevey, who's a great union organizer, maybe who's have who you've had on your show. I can't remember. But yeah, she's just, she's been on the show. She's fantastic. Yeah. She's just sort of talking about like four alarm fire, like we need street mobilization. We need bodies. We need people in the streets. Like we know th- 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 it is folly and crazy to think that, well, you know, well, but that's against the rules. Just trust the institutions. And, and I'm I'm torn between those two. I really am. I don't know the right answer here. Um, I think he's coming at a, at a state of weakness. And I think that what, here's what's interesting to me. The people I most associate with the modern Republican Party much more than Donald Trump are Mitch McConnell and John Roberts. And in fact, those three men, I think, sort of form a kind of triad <laughs> of what the modern Republican Party is Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, and John Roberts. Like, that's the triangle of the modern Republican Party. And to be totally honest, I think Mitch McConnell will take his Senate majority and his durable supermajority on the Supreme Court, along with John Roberts, and Toss Trump off the bus if they have to, <laughs> and I, I think there's some signs of that. Um, you could also say they have they have a principled, you know, belief in actually counting votes. I mean, what the, part of what it is making it hard about what the how to react to the president is that what he's doing is so facially ridiculous. Like a lawsuit to the Supreme Court to stop valid votes being counted in Pennsylvania. Like it was one thing to talk about that bat, batch of votes that arrive after Election Day, which they had already kind of created a little bit of like litigation shadow over they could then come back to. But you can't just I mean, I guess you can try, but they, they, they don't they don't ha- they have no case to stop the voting in Pennsylvania, but keep the voting in Arizona like it's so manifestly weak. It's so manifestly fraudulent and incompetently executed at this point that I think I'm disposed to point to it as the desperate actions of a loser and that Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. But again, I've had this feeling about the peaceful transition of power question, where I've I've gone back and forth. Of you know, people will ask me like, well, what's what happens if he he won't go? I'm like, then the Secret Service will literally show him out of the White House at twelve o'clock on January twentieth, as prescribed in the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> like, what do you mean he won't go? Like that that not to indulge the weird quasi Jedi mind trick hypnotic effect he tries to create with kind of an anchoring. Of expectations around craziness. At the same time, it also feels like maybe stupidly naive and institutionalist to be like, "Well, the Secret Service will walk them out because the Constitution's <laughs> like." I, I just, <laughs> I, I'm re- I'm torn on this question. I am genuinely torn. I don't even
2: know that there's a, a question of how we need to treat it. I just, I sort of just want to say it's happening.
3: It, last night was, ha- last night was like, it, it was happening. Yeah, I mean, but it's ongoing. The fact that it's, I was.
2: Laughing before I got on here because I think Rudy Giuliani tweeted. He's like, "I'm going to Pennsylvania because we're not going to let them." I was like, "You're Rudy Giuliani's going to go to Pennsylvania and what? Right, right. He's going to get get out of his chauffeured car there and and what? Like set up set a fire? Like what? What what is he going to do in like what? What Rudy? What expertise does Rudy Giuliani possibly bring to this to this um, situation? And so it's so ridiculous on some level, and yet. Donald Trump is the president of the United States, and as much as there's a, an element of the farce in this tragedy, like he is trying to make it happen here, you know, for lack of another way to put it, and it is a strange thing to live through this cosplay autocracy. Yes, right, this like. This like this aesthetic of somebody who wants to make an autocratic attempt and probably does want to make an autocratic attempt, but it's just like way too much of a fool to pull it off. But at the same time, it is made worse in my gut to go back to what we were talking about earlier, that this would be autocrat who would absolutely burn this country's political institutions to the ground to hold on to power and media attention for another day, who would do it without thinking. And who does it in this unbelievably ridiculous, buffoonish way is going to get 40 some percent of the vote. Right. And very easily could have been the winner and still to some degree could be could be the winner, depending on how things play out. I don't even know how to finish a sentence. It is being trapped in between the aesthetics of this thing and the reality of this thing, and the fact that it's probably not going to go that way, but you could see that it could, it's completely maddening. And there's no there's no emotional response that feels appropriate.
3: I continue to, like, to me, the, again, the closest analog, and I find solace in this, and I think you've even talked about this and maybe done a show on it, is the Berlusconi example. Because Berlusconi was... He I, I had this line that I would say to people after 2016 where I would say, like, prepare for Mussolini and pray for Berlusconi <laughs> that, you That's know, a very good line that the worst the worst case scenario is like, you know, fascism Um, and the and sort of the best case scenario, which is still really bad, is this kind of, you know, buffoonish, destructive, anti-democratic, demagogic, but also kind of ridiculous character, like a little like Buddy Cianci, the mayor of of Providence, like this this kind of like corrupt and buffoonish demagogue, but who also just doesn't have either the, the vision or the ability or the right circumstances to pull off actual fascism, even as he destroys and degrades democratic institutions. And that's the weird liminal nature of this, right? Like we keep reaching for these examples that don't quite seem right, you know, Weimar or you know italy and, and mussolini or even our own country's long legacy of jim crow authoritarian one-party rule for you know seven decades in the united states south that that's probably closer it, it, it's similar to me in a lot of ways to like really corrupt machine politics um w- w- what he has attempted to do and in some ways partly pulled off But none of it, it just doesn't quite land in the right spot, like the neat mental category to say, oh, this is it. And then and then I, you know, you feel this, the people that are convinced that it is the case, that it is fascism or that it is, you know, more like what we saw from Mussolini or whatever. Like, I I don't think they're crazy or hysterical. I, 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 I battle with this myself, but I, I agree with you in struggling to name what it is. What was the display that we saw at five in the morning? It was disgusting. It was authoritarian. It was anti-democratic. It was bad for the American democracy. It was also kind of weak and floundering in its own way. So what does that add up to? Before I lose you
2: here, one of the things that does seem to be true last night is that there was a shift of Hispanic voters towards Trump and a shift of white voters to Biden. And that turns out to be an, an electorally useful shift because there are more white voters. But but it's a it's also a narratively um, defiant shift, right? Like very central to the understanding of Donald Trump and part the liberal understanding of Donald Trump over the past couple of years is that he is a bigot and a racist who is a particularly anim, a particular animus towards Hispanic immigrants, and that to the extent he has any. Potency at all. It is because he is getting white people to act more like a embattled identity group in a period of demographic change. And of that last part is something that that I have written about and thought and and, and pushed. And I don't think it's entirely wrong. No, but it's not. Certainly, it, it did not continue that trend into this election. So I'm I'm curious what you make of that as sort of one of the one big pieces of change in this. I think we can say happened with some rigor and and really
3: undermines some narratives that, that were coming into this election. So we, I did a podcast with Chuck Rocha, who is the sort of uh, very high up in the Bernie Sanders campaign and and sort of Latino uh, coordinator came up through the Steelworkers Union from the Rio Grande Valley, uh, a, a redneck from, from East Texas, as he calls himself. And um, we had a really fascinating conversation on this, actually a few weeks before the election, if people want to take a listen to that. I think one of the things Chuck said and it stuck with me is that they actually they did make a pivot in their messaging. He did stop talking about Mexicans as rapists. (laughs) They didn't like they did not foreground immigration. It was, in fact, one of the craziest things about the 2020 election was the utter and complete absence of immigration as an issue. It was probably the number one issue in 2016, thanks largely to Donald Trump, And it was nowhere and partly it was nowhere because Democrats are like the, you know, they had already touched the hot stove and they thought that the party's commitments on immigration were in tension with the immigration views of the kind of white voter they try to win back. And Donald Trump didn't want to talk about it because I think what happened, I, I really think there was a shift around Kenosha where someone realized there was just no juice left to squeeze out of white nationalist white identity politics (laughs) that they had they had juiced it and there was a very hard pivot to find votes elsewhere and you saw it in the campaign messaging you saw it with like the rapper endorsements down the stretch and the and the and the foregrounding of them and the ads in spanish language media and spanish language tweets from donald trump which can you imagine in 2016 like if Hillary Clinton, I, mean, I do remember th-
2: when he had the taco bowl and he said, of that, course.
3: <laughs> so I think remember that photo, yes. Oh, yes. I so basically what I think is that, A, there was a strategic shift in the campaign messaging that was effective. B, I think gender has a lot to do with it. There's a great Jenny Medina piece in The New York Times about sort of Hispanic men. Uh, C, I think that there are a lot of. Ways you can compare the category we call Latino or Hispanic, which is incredibly heterogeneous and complex um, and constructed, as all racial and ethnic categories are, um, that there are some similarities to, like, what used to be called white ethnics, um, who were a dependable democratic constituency that Nixon kind of brought into the fold. And I think there's some interesting parallels there um, in in the ways— the position that, quote unquote, Hispanics occupy in American society. And the fourth thing I'll say is, and this is not my point, this is, you know, David Shore makes this point, other people, just education polarization is a powerful force pulling across all races. And, you know, we're, we see that with white people, but we also see it with black people and we see it with Hispanic people. The country's political views, I think it's sense of who belongs and who doesn't, what 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 team they are on you know, increasingly tracks in people's educational attainment. Um, I think it's a fascinating, complicated trend, but I think that 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 gravity was doing a lot of the work um, in, in a lot of these places. Chris Hayes, thank you very much. Thank you, man.
2: Thank you to Chris for being here. Um, I'm going to give one book recommendation because we ran out of time for me to get any from him, which is we mentioned Berlusconi in that interview. One of my favorite books uh, to think about actually this era in American politics is a book I read about Berlusconi years ago called The Sack of Rome by Alexander Still. Um, The Sack of Rome, media, money, celebrity equals power, equals Silvio Berlusconi. And it's just a book that, because it is not specifically about America and the Trump era, but it's about a different country and a slightly different time, offers a really powerful window into the kind of politics that we've been living through, Um, maybe in certain ways coming to the other side of for the moment, but it is worth recognizing that it is by no means gone. These are tendencies and pathways to power that exist in other countries that are appealing to lots of people. Um, I said at the beginning of the show, I maintain that it sometimes breaks my heart to see so many people who are willing to accept the way Donald Trump treats this world and the people in it, but that doesn't mean there aren't a lot of people who find value in him. So I think it's it, it's important to try to marinate in that and sit and see how others have been able to do that even more successfully. Berlusconi um, was dominant in Italian politics for quite a long time, much longer than it looks to me like Trump will be here. But again, I guess we'll see. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Gell for producing these recordings of Vox Media
4: podcast production.